Generational apostasy, that's what we're going to see today in uh, the book of Judges. We're going to see this pattern repeated uh, throughout the entire book of Judges. What we see happen is that what God's people do. So think about this. People who, uh, are, who know or are supposed to know, love, and trust the God of the Bible, what they, they say is, like, I, I, for, I'm going to forsake his word, will, and ways, and I'm going to adopt worship of the gods of the culture around. Here's the reality. You can't be neutral. You'll either worship God or you will worship something else as God. And so uh, what we're going to find is that God's people continue to forsake his world, word, will, and ways and worship uh, gods that they fashion their own image and or the gods of the nations around them. Uh, and it's going to continue until it gets so bad that there's no more that, that there's no more generations that follow that ever repent until God shows up, gives them a king, and it, it just gets dark and, and grim throughout the entire book of Judges. And so today is going to serve um, in some ways as a recap from last week in part, because we're going to hear some of the, some of the details that, that were mentioned last week. Um, uh, the, the, the author of Judges kind of retells the story again. It's almost like a double intro. The reason that well, that's effective and helpful is because uh, it really is important for us to understand the context of what's happening as we get into the, uh, the, the different judges. And a judge, what we're going to see uh, next week is our first ba- batch of judges, is the judge is someone that God raises up uh, to, uh, to lead his people out of rebellion and folly and repentance. Oftentimes it was accompanied by uh, a military leader um, in, in, in the book of Judges in, the, in their context. Um, and so they would de- literally deliver God's people from the hand of oppression of the other uh, nations that surrounded them. And so how, how, do we, how did they get to the position they are in? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. If you need a Bible, uh, we're going to be in Judges chapter 2. You can raise your hand. One of our ushers will bring you one. If you don't have a Bible, this is our gift to you. Um, we're going to be in Judges chapter 2. We're going to go through chapter 3, um, uh, the big 3 verse 6. That's where we're going to end today. And so uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 6, where we're going to start. Uh, generational apostasy, that's what's going on. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each, of his, each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, uh, who had seen all the work uh, that the Lord had done for Israel. So I'm going to pause there because this is the last good news in Judges, really. Like this is the last like time God's people uh, hold fast to his word, will, and ways. Uh, we only see uh, in, 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 in the entire book of Judges, only two moments in the entire book where God's people actually turn to him and inquire of him. We saw one of them last week, and we won't see another one until the very end of the book of Judges. And the book of Judges spans 300 years. So God's people... It takes 300 years for them to seek the Lord again. Like my hope for you is that we start the year seeking the Lord, and it wouldn't take you another 300 years to start seeking the Lord again. Like this is this is what happens. God uh, raised up a man named Joshua. Uh, he led his God's people. Um, They're going into the land that God had promised to give His people. And, 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 and Joshua loved the Lord, worshiped the Lord, uh, raised up another generation after him. That's what it says, uh, who, who, who loved, the wor- loved the Lord. And so this is Joshua and the elders who outlived him. So that's two generations here. In verse 8, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. So Joshua has died. Uh, now, in verse 9, they buried him in the boundaries of his inheritance in Timnath Herez. In the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gash, 
And verse 10, and all that generation also gathered to their father. So Joshua, his generation is that, and the ones who came after him, they've died. So that's our context. Joshua, following the, the Lord, raised up a generation we saw last week who sought and inquired of the Lord, those who, the elders who outlived Joshua. And now those elders who sought the, to, to inquire of the Lord last week, those elders have died. That's where we're at. And they've, they've been gathered to their fathers. That means they've been, they were buried as well uh, with their family. And, and there arose another generation. So after them comes another generation. Uh, and also uh, arose another generation with them who did not know the Lord or the work he had done for Israel. So see, Ecclesiastes is clear in chapter 1 that generations come and generations go. That's like the refrain in the, the entire you know, human you know, existence is there's a generation, there's another generation. It just Generations just continue to, to, to have. Generational change is unavoidable. Like there is going to be another generation that follows the current generation. That's unavoidable. But what, what we need to see is there's also generational overlap. It's not like one generation dies and the next generation starts at zero uh, and then like they, 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 they restart. Uh, it's, it's generations tend to overlap. And you see this, you know, some generations, like I don't like the older generation, the younger generation, like, I don't like the older generation. Like they're, they're saying that because they exist at the same time. And so what I want us to see is there's generational overlap here. And so there's not just generational overlap. Um, when Joshua is, is, he is raised up the next generation, the elders who we told outlived Joshua, those who lived, you know, outlived him. He invested in them. There was overlap. They got to see the work of Joshua. They got to see the ministry of Joshua. They got to learn and grow from the discipleship of Joshua, right? And then they, they, then Joshua died and they, they continued to carry the torch forward. Well, they die and then it says, then there arose another generation after them. But we know, you know, humanly speaking, biologically speaking, like that other generation existed in congruence with the, with the, the, the elders uh, who, who outlived Joshua uh, while they were alive. So there was a generational overlap. So while uh, generational change is unavoidable, um, there, is a, there is a moment in time where the next generation has an opportunity to invest in the, in the future generation and to teach them God's word, will, and ways in order that they would carry the baton forward into that next generation. And so uh, we say this often here, but it bears reminding that uh, a culture is, is created by what you teach and what you tolerate. It's what you teach and what you tolerate. Meaning this, if you teach something, imagine in your home, just imagine this, you teach something, for example, don't stand on the chairs or the couch or maybe you have a dog. We won't even talk about humans. We'll talk about dogs. Dog's not allowed on the couch. You know, that's the rule. You say that. That's the rule. Teaching. Dog's not allowed on the couch. If you tolerate your dog being on the couch, what is the culture of your home? Your dog's on your couch, 100%, right? Everyone who has a dog who, who has been like me and like tolerated the disobedience there, you know, that's how it is. It's, that's how it is. Same is true for people. If you teach something to your kids, but you tolerate something else, the culture in your house will be what you tolerate. Now, if you teach something and then you uh, uh, also don't tolerate disobedience to that thing, then, then you create a culture that, that, um, that, that what you teach and what you tolerate are in congruence with one another. And they're like a right hand and a left hand and they work in harmony together. And so what's going on here is that um, while the, the second generation that followed Joshua, these elders who outlived Joshua, they taught, we see that they inquired of the Lord. 
They, if you were to ask them, what do you believe in? They, we believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our forefathers. We believe in, in, the gener- in, in that God rescued us out of Egyptian slavery through Moses, uh, and he led our people through the, the wilderness, and he's brought us to a land of promise. We believe it. They would, they, would, they would articulate true things about the one true and living God. The problem is, is they tolerated the next generation disobeying. It doesn't just all of a sudden happen. That when they died, like, hope, oh, now, that, now that grandma's died, like, we, it's time for us to rebel. Like, now we don't have to worship. Maybe some, but most of them, no. They, they, were, they, were being, they were not being taught to worship the Lord God fully while those elders were alive. Those, that, that generation was alive. And so what I, what I want us to see here is that when it says that there arose another generation uh, after them who did not know the Lord or the work of the Lord, the indictment is on the generation that preceded them. They did not teach them to know the Lord. Like they didn't teach, just imagine this. This is, they, 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 they're, you know, their parents know, love, and trust the God of the Bible, but their kids don't. Ever seen that in a generation? You're like, some of you are like, that's my story. <laughs> like that's it. Like that, I, I understand that. See, this is what's going on among God's people. So the failure here is a, is a failure to disciple what I don't mean is, is uh, simply bring them to church, teach them about God. What I'm talking about is a disciple where Jesus has commanded, right? We saw this last week, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. He teaches, he commands us to make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. And he says he's promised he'll be with us till he comes back, right? He'll always be with us. And so this, there's this discipleship cycle that's supposed to go on. A disciple makes another disciple and that disciple, in turn, makes another disciple. See, if you've made a disciple, and then your disciples don't make disciples, the cycle ceases. It ceases. This is what happened. Josh, Moses made a disciple of Joshua. Joshua made a disciple of the elders who outlived him. The elders knew the God of the Bible. They even inquired of him. We saw last week. Really awesome. They inquired of the Lord. But they did not teach the next generation to know, love, and trust the God of the Bible. And so what I want us to see, the same is true in our day and age, the, the, the failure here is a failure of discipleship. See, uh, what I, I believe we really truly, and I'm not just talking about us here, I'm talking about the church in America uh, uh, at large has not taught one another to joyfully obey Jesus, to joyfully obey him. See, we've evangelized. We've evangelized. We've uh, seen converts. We've seen We've seen mission trips. Some of you are like, I've been on those. We've, we've seen a ministry started, nonprofits, caring for the poor, the needy, feeding, clothing, sheltering those who have need. We've seen a great multitude of baptisms. We've seen churches built to meet, meet the needs of, 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 of the seeker. We've, we've seen all these things go on in our day, but we haven't taught one another the joyful blessing of willful obedience to Jesus. That's part of discipleship. When Jesus says, he, so we've done the first part, go make disciples. You, how do you make one? First, you've got to see converts. We've done that. Then you've got to baptize them. And then you've got to teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. See, the part of the Great Commission, the mission that Jesus has given his people is one that, that is full of obedience to him, joyful obedience. 
And see, this is where we, we've talked about last week. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. What we're not talking about here is obeying God out of, out of uh, strictly fear. What we're talking about is obeying God because we love him, obeying his commands because we love him. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus teaches. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. And so what we've, some will say, and I, you, you'll talk to people in this day and age who say, well, I love Jesus, but like, and then they'll start editing God's word. I love Jesus, but I don't, you know, I don't really follow Paul. I don't really, Paul, you know, I, the, the apostles I don't really follow, but I follow, you know, I follow Jesus. You know, well, read actually his words. I don't really think anyone who's ever said that actually has read Jesus. I just really don't because uh, he's sometimes more harsh on things than, than Paul. Like, he is. And so <laughs> Jesus talks about hell more than anybody. You know, like, I, I believe in Jesus, then you, you should. I'm glad you do. Then obey his commands. Obey his commands. That's what he teaches. So what I want us to see here is that what's happening in, with this great generational apostasy going on in Israel, and apostasy is not, is, is not just a, a pejorative term. It's a term that has its roots in uh, uh, a military language uh, referring to a defector. Like So when a, an, uh, an army would have a, or a nation would, have a, would be set up against their enemy, um, an apostate would be a defector. They would literally leave and join the other team. They'd begin to fight against their own nation. They'd begin, and we see this in our world today. This is a, uh, the, the, they are a defector. They join the ranks of the other team. And so maybe that's from uh, they had weak um, you know, trust in their nation or, or weak trust in their government or, for, the, for example, the church. Maybe they, maybe they were hurt by the church or in our day and age. Maybe they uh, uh, you know, wanted to blend some ideologies. But the point is what is going on here and what is happening in our day and age is that God, God's people uh, are leaving his church, leaving his word, not trusting his word, will, and ways. They're no longer trusting the God of the Bible. Jesus is the only way to salvation. They're blending ideologies together. We see this happening here with a great generational apostasy among God's people. We also are seeing it in our day and age. And I want you to see what is the linchpin here in all this is discipleship. It's the mission. See, Jesus' mission doesn't fail. Like he, he's not a commander-in-chief that says, go do the mission, and like, hey, guess what? It's not going to work. Like, it's going to work. Like, make disciples to make disciples to make disciples. Keep doing that till I come, and then guess what? The world will have known me. That's our job. And so what we see here is that they did, not, uh, they did not teach the next generation to joyfully obey the God of the Bible. Therefore, when the nations around them told them, hey, it seems like your God's a little bit oppressive. He seems a little old school, a little narrow-minded, a little, you know, he's a little bigotry there. Like, it's easy to fall by the wayside when you weren't trained to love obedience to God. You weren't trained to love obedience to God. And we all often say it this way when I'm talking to my kids, like we have, a, we have a massive fence. It's actually a wall in our backyard. The reason being is because behind that wall is a field. Behind that field is a highway. <laughs> the wall, is it restrictive of my children? Absolutely. Can they climb it? One of them can't. They can. And he struggles. But it's, it's there to, de- to deter them from getting over there to getting into the road. Right? Like, that's why it exists. Does it, does it restrict them? Absolutely. But what, for, to what point? So that they can maximize their joy in the backyard. I want them to be able to play out in the backyard safely. My kids wake up in the morning. They walk right outside. That's the first thing they do. That's their morning coffee as they go outside. And they're playing in the dirt. That's what they want to do. Well, how can they do that safely and joyfully? Because they've obeyed the parameters, the rules of the, the, back, the bounds of the backyard. See, God's word binds God's people. It does restrict, but in a way that keeps us safe so that we can flourish, that we can actually maximize our joy 
not to rob us from joy. The world will tell you that God's ways and his rules will rob you of joy. And so God's people weren't taught that, so they go around in the nations around them, they're like, man, they look like they're having way more fun than we are. It's real, like Baal, Ashtoreth, we'll talk about what that is later. Like, that seems fun. We should join them. What was not taught was joyful, willful obedience to God's word of one ways. Psalm 19, 7 through 11, this is how the Bible talks about the law of the Lord, the word of God. Like, this is what the Bible says about obedience to the, the rules of God. He says this, like, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's the first thing he says. Some of you are reading through the Bible in a year. Praise be to God. I'm glad you're doing that Bible in a year plan. Uh, some of you are in Leviticus. I need you to know. You're like, I'm struggling, Pastor. Pray for me. I'm in Leviticus. Here's my word for you. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. You want revival? Keep re- reading Leviticus. You're like, really? That's, is that the law? Yep, it is. It's literally the law, the Levitical laws. That's what Leviticus is. You're like, that's a struggle. It's kind of, yes. It, the Bible tells us that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Some of you are like, I don't like rules. Well, you don't like righteousness altogether either then, apparently. Like, that's what they are. How are we to think about those things? He says, verse 10, more to be desired than gold. You should want God's word, will, and ways more than gold. More than fine gold. Like there's levels to this, you know, wealth. You know, I like there's, you know, there's gold and there's fine gold. Like sweeter than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, by God's word, will, and ways, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is a great reward. See, God's rules, God's law, God's testimony, God's precepts, God's commands, in short, his word, will, and ways, they are to be desired more than gold, more than money, more than wealth, and more than, it says that they're sweeter than honey. They're sweeter than honey. Some of you, like, I'm a, I've told this before. I did not tell this to the first service, so don't tell them. I'm a honey snob. Like, I am a honey snob. I used to eat the fake honey, and then I had the real honey. Like, there's levels to this, guys. Some guy with some bees gave me some honey, and, like, I had some honey. There's levels to honey. It's so good. Some of you are like, this guy's crazy. Have some real honey, some real, like, legit honey. It is a game changer. I can't eat that stuff anymore. You go out fast food, and they give you honey. No, can't do it. I lost my taste for the junk. I love honey. I want us to see, like, that's how God's word should be to you. You're like, I can't, I can't handle the junk. Like, I got the pure stuff right here. This is, the, this is the true gold. This is the true sweetness. This is the true honey, God's word. But we all know what happens, right? When, God, when, when you eat something artificial or fake, like high fructose corn syrup, you know, like if you have your diet primarily with, with fake sugar, what happens? You stop desiring the real thing. You eat an apple, and like, that's not sweet enough. Like, I got to put syrup on my apple. Like, what? You know, like you see this. And, and so like everyone, if you've, if you've ever, if some of you, maybe you're stuck on the high fructose thing, that's fine. Uh, get to the real thing. If you get off that and, you, and you're like, man, I'm tasting honey, honey's not that good. If you're so, you know, fixated on the fake stuff, you lose your taste for what's truly, actually sweet. What's the point I'm making? God's law and God's word, his will and ways are to be tasted like sweet, great, fine, purified, perfect, awesome honey. 
That's how it is. But when, a, when you raise a generation that ingests the counterfeit, then they no longer think God's word is sweet. So it's possible that you go to God's word and you no longer find it to be sweet or you don't enjoy it at all. It's because your diet has consisted of consuming the false, phony, fake, counterfeit. And maybe, and, and if you became a Christian later on in life, 100% true. You, like, that you did not t- ever taste the, the sweetness of God's word and now you got saved and now you're, 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 ta- you're like me tasting honey, the good honey for the first time. You're like, what is this? What is this? And so we must, this is what I'm saying, we must teach one another the joy, the privilege, the, the sweetness of God's word in obedience to his commands. It doesn't just say that it's sweet, but he's saying by, by keeping them, your servant, by, by, by reading, knowing, loving God's word well in ways, your servant is warned. This is the whole uh, analogy when I was talking about the, 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 the wall in my backyard. It's, it's a warning. It's a, it's a barrier. It's, a, it's to keep my kids safe. The law of the Lord warns us to protect us, to keep us safe so that it can maximize our enjoyment. And also it says that the, the, the word of God, the law of the Lord, it's word, will, and ways, it keeps in keeping, obeying God's word is a great reward. It's a great reward. We must teach one another this. This is part of the Great Commission, teaching one another that obedience to Jesus is not just fulfilling the Great Commission, but doing so joyfully, willfully, looking at God's Word as it has described itself to be and experiencing that, that it describes. That is the mission. That's the discipleship we got to be a part of. The result, if we don't, the result of not teaching joyful, willful obedience to God's Word will and ways will be, just like we're going to see in Judges, generational unfaithfulness. Verse 11, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. I want you to see this. They did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What did they do? They worshiped another God. I need you to see this. It is evil to worship anyone other than the God of the Bible. Like You might think that people who worship other gods are nice people. I didn't say they weren't. What I'm saying is the act of worshiping anything other than the God of the Bible is evil. It is evil. That's what he says. It is evil. And what do they do? And what happens when you start worshiping someone or another being or another you know, deity other than the God of the Bible, it's going to lead you to abandon the God of the Bible. That's what happens next. Verse 12, then they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. So the nations who lived around them, that's the gods that they chose. And it says they bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they abandoned the Lord. And they served the Baals and Ashtaroths. See, they did a great evil, and that's forsaking the God who saved them. right? The God who saved their fathers. So the God who, who saved Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who saved Israel out of Egypt through the hand of Moses, who f- afterwards followed Joshua. All, all these things, these people forgot. They forsook. They, they, did not, they, didn't, they, they, they did not worship that same God. They, they abandoned him. He says, he says, this is a great evil. They abandoned. And so when you look at our day and age, some people will, 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 may not use that language. And what I'm not abandoning, but like, you know, I'm just no longer a Christian. I grew up in church. You'll hear it all the time. I'm no, I'm no longer a Christian. I grew up in church, and now I don't, I don't really associate with Christianity, don't really associate with the church. Like this is happening in droves in our nation. 
You're like, well, maybe they had a bad experience. Like, absolutely, they probably did have a bad experience. But also, the, God's Word teaches us that bad experiences uh, do not negate a good God. God uses bad experiences to bring about good. You know what the worst experience in human history was? The murder of Jesus. God enters into human history, enters into the suffering of mankind willfully because he loves us. And so when you see evil in the world, that doesn't mean that, that uh, you, we should forsake God and rebel against him. It means we should run to him. He's our only safety, the only one who can help us understand, the only one who can make sense of, of what is going on around us. So they, they abandoned the Lord. They, 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 Christianity was no longer palatable to them for whatever reason. They were, quote, an apostate. They defected. They left Christianity altogether. Maybe it was bad theology. Maybe they were never really saved. We can, we can rationalize why that happens. And many in our day will do that. People will not want to talk about the great generational apostasy that's happening in our day. And what we'll want to say is like, well, it's, it's not really a... a and, and I'm not knocking anybody, but this is what we say. It's not an apostasy. It's just, it's a cleansing. You know, we're finding out who's really, who's who. Yeah, that's what they were doing too. That's, what's, that's what an apostasy, like who's not with Jesus is leaving. That's called apostate. They're leaving in droves. They've abandoned the Lord. And see, it's impossible to abandon the Lord and just be neutral. I need you to, I need you to see this. It's impossible. There's no neutrality. You'll either worship the Lord Jesus or you will worship something in place of him. So what do they replace their worship? Baal and Ashtaroth. Who are, who are those guys? Well, it's a guy and a girl. I know, binary, it's not, it's, they weren't very, uh, you know, 2023, but uh, that's what it was. Baal was the male and, and, and Ashtaroth was the female. These were deities uh, enshrined in, in statues oftentimes and, and with altars. Um, that, uh, this, this was uh, the, the type of worship uh, for Baal and Ashtaroth consisted of sa- a sacrifice of sex and prostitution in the name of the common good. That's, that's typically what it was. And so I wouldn't, I'm not going to describe the male looked male and the female looked female. Like that's not what their images were. That's what they were. And so the common practice was for, uh, for them to go down, uh, the, the men of the city go down to the, the, the shrine uh, uh, of Baal and have sex with a prostitute in, in an act of worship in hopes to get the approval of the gods of the day. That's what they were doing. And so instead of trusting the God of the Bible for things like grain, rain, uh, uh, pr- you know, provision, they would, they would seek provision from the gods of the culture around them. Like, well, how do you, how do you uh, summons, you know, provision? You got, and some of you are like, why are they doing this? Well, because no one taught them how to worship God with sex. No one taught them how to worship the God of the Bible. Like they didn't, they didn't, they weren't taught anything, so they just worshipped whatever was around them. But it was also another uh, practice uh, that was common among Baal worship was the sacrifice of children, especially when they're inconvenient. So they're going down prostitution, you know, sleeping around, and all of a sudden, what happens? Babies. And what do you do? Kill them. Sound familiar? Like the same murderous act of abortion is going on in our day and age. It is. See, we don't have shrines, but we do have flags. We don't have altars, but we do have clinics. See, God's people had, had, had seen this. This was what was going on among the pagan world around them. They said, we're going to join you, not just an affirmation. We're going to participate with you in this worship. That's what we see. God's people had forsaken him. God had loved them. He had set them free. This is what we got to see. Like when, when people are leaving the church and in, in, in following the, the rebellious narratives of our day and age and our nation around us, 
We've got we to be reminded that this, God loved you. God saved you. God sought after you. He made a way for you. But our day and, age, day and age and theirs too, they knew better. They're matured. They're educated. They're enlightened. They went to college. Grandpa, he's dead. He's old. He's outdated. The Canaanites, they got this new thing going on, and it's fun. I'm sure, you know, sounds like it was fun. Sin's always fun. Or maybe they were like, well, you know, I just feel like God's ways were, all what I remember of what I learned in the church seemed oppressive, and so this seems more affirmative, and, you know, seems like they view love differently. I'm kind of into that. See, the God of the culture seems more enlightened and more tolerant and more diverse, and, and, and you, know, you know, I'm going to bow to them. That's what it says. They, they bowed to them, the gods who were around them. They bowed. They didn't just, they weren't neutral. We got to see this. They didn't just see the, the gods around them going, hey, you believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. Let's just coexist. They didn't do that. They said, I'm going to bow down and worship your gods. They're like, I'm not religious. Whatever the religious narrative of the, the, the majority, they followed. That's what, that's what it is. People are like, I'm not religious. Well, just watch their life. Who do they follow? Everyone's religious. The question is, who are they worshiping? And so they bow down and worship the gods of, of the Canaanites around them. Baal and Ashtoreth, they bowed, it said. I want you to see that they bowed their knee. They didn't contend. Jude tells us for the Christians in our day and age, we're to contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints. We're to contend. So when, we, when, the, when the message of the gospel and, the, and, and, and God's word is passed down from generation to generation, all the way back from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the way to you in the presence, present, what are we to do? We're to contend for the faith, to contend for it. They don't contend they, they, they bow. They don't stand in honor of God's word or stand and defend God in, in his word. They sit. They scoff. They complain. They don't pursue God in his word, but they pursue the, the gods of the culture around them. And what this does, it says it, it provoked the Lord to anger. It infuriated God. I just want to see this. It's, this is the God who saved them. You were enslaved by a wicked ruler enslaving you in Egypt. And I loved you and I rescued, I heard your cries, I rescued you out to come worship me in the wilderness and I'm bringing you to a land where you will have, be a nation. But you have forsaken me and bowed your knee to the nations around you. And the anger of the Lord was provoked. Let's look at the anger of the Lord in chapter 2, verse 14. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And God gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. See, this word kindled means literally to light or set on fire. See, what this means is, is God's, the anger of the Lord was set ablaze, raging fire against his people. And he sold them into the hands of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. The hand of the Lord was against them. I want you to see this. When God's people forsake his word, will, and ways, his hand is against them. So Christians, churches, organizations who are apostate in our day, worshiping the gods of our day, 
the hand of the Lord is against them. And it's as he swore to them, he had told them that would happen. And they were in terrible distress. See, what ends up happening is God essentially just gives them over to the things they already want. You want to worship the Canaanite gods? Go ahead. Follow the logical conclusion to your, your, your worship of the Canaanite gods. Guess what it is? It's ruin and misery. Oh, you, want to work, you think these, these nations are good to you? They're going to be good to you? Oh, they're giving you snacks now. They're giving you free land now. Guess what? When they oppress you, how are you going to feel? Oh, well, we, they, they're, not, they're never going to do that. They love us. The government it always loves us. They, they do good to us. As long as we don't worship our gods and worship their gods, they're really nice. And that was a, they were in terrible distress because of that. The future of one who forsakes God's word, will, and ways and, and submits to the gods of the age, especially nations and government authorities who would be godless and think that they have their best interests and good, it will ultimately lead to ruin, misery, or, quote, terrible distress. This is what happens. And so essentially, this is what happens. Like God just gives them over to what they want to do. Okay, you want to worship at, at Baal? Go ahead. Oh, you want to have free sex? That's cool. You want this? That's cool. You want to do that? Cool. Go, go do it. And guess what? And, and live with the fruit of your labor. I'm telling you, this is where we're at in our day and age. This is the trajectory we're at in our country. We're living in light of the fruit of our labor. We're living in light of our failure of discipleship. We're living in light of getting in cahoots or literally and figuratively laying in bed with the evil, demonic idolatry of our culture and our day and our age. We're living with it. If some of you are like, no, we're not, well, let me just let you know. Some of you will be like, man, this is the Old Testament. We're New Testament people. It's different now. Well, let's go to the New Testament. I'm just going to read it for you. You can, I'm not going to spend too much time on it, but I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 32 says this, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. So you want to know if God's angry at sin? He is. He calls it wrath. What would, might it look like in the New Testament day, our day and age, if God's wrath was revealed? That's what we need to be asking. What would it look like if God was really angry at sin, righteously angry at sin? What would it look like in our day? It says that, uh, it says it this way, uh, God has revealed, uh, his wrath of God has been revealed from heaven from against all unrighteousness and the unrighteousness of the men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known by God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, can be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. No nation, no day and age since the beginning of time can, has an excuse. God says that he's revealed himself. And it's clearly visible, it says. Well, why don't they believe you? are like, why aren't they believing? Well, because in unrighteousness, it says, verse 18, they suppress the truth. They know the truth, but they suppress it. Have you ever met someone who knows the truth but suppresses it? I call that lying. You know, like, and then they, they live, they talk, you know, later. Like, COVID was a, was a case study of this, right? Like, the whole thing. Like, we had, we had public figures come up suppressing the truth. I don't care which side of it on, you're on. You know this is true. There was, they, you said one thing. The next day you said another thing. The next thing you said another thing. And you never went back and said, I was wrong about any of these things, even though there was contradiction. Like that happened. 
And then when, when news got out that things were getting wrong, what was it? Suppressing information, suppressing truth. Whether it be COVID or, uh, I don't know, JFK, like, just name it. Our, our nation is really great at suppressing the truth. Why? Because they're sinners like we are, and sinners, mankind, this is what we do. We in our unrighteousness know what God has said. It has been revealed to us by nature and is written on our hearts, but we don't want to worship him, so we suppress the truth. It continues, and so, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. See, Satan not knows God, but he doesn't honor him as God, so it's not enough to know him. They did not give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds, and animals, and creeping things. And therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged, why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Just like in Judges, God hands them over to worship the gods of the Canaanites, so we in our day have been handed over. If that's what you want to do, find the logical outworking of your idolatry. God's given given us up to the lust of our hearts, the impurities. This is what we're seeing because we've exchanged the truth about God and worshiped a lie. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passion. So what does it look like socially? Well, now they start being really excited about dishonorable things. For their women exchanged natural relations. This is like, you know, sexually for those that are are contrary to nature. And their men likewise gave up natural relationships with women that's what's natural, man with a woman, he said it, and where they were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, uh, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what, that, that not, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with uh, all manner of unrighteousness, so think about our nation, filled with unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Ladies and gentlemen, the wrath of God has been revealed in our day. Our nation has been deceived, and churches in our nation are being deceived along the way. We should expect the non-Christian world to be deceived. But what we're seeing in our day is God's people being seduced and tempted to follow suit. Many already have, and many more will, unless the tide turns and changes. And so what I want us to see is that God really is righteously angry with our sin. He really is. Some will say, well, uh, you know, God, and the, God the Father is angry, but Jesus is not. He seems compassionate. No, he was, he's angry. I don't know if you remember last week when Jesus showed up and rebuked them. That was him. He was angry. He's angry. See, God is three persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When God the Father is angry, Jesus is angry. I promise you. This is what it's going to look like. In the, in, in the afterlife, 
Jesus is actually the one who's going to oversee hell. That's, that's what's happening. So what we see here is that God's angry, so angry with sin, so angry with the rebellion of his people, so angry that they've, they, he's loved them so much and they've rebelled against him. Just get this picture. He loves his people so much, but they rebel generation after generation after generation after generation. There's no fix. So Jesus comes. Fast forward. Jesus enters human history to fix our sin problem, to save us, to rescue us. Not because he's no longer angry at sin, it's because he's, he's still righteously angry. And he sees the path that we're headed on. And he wants to step in and save a people. To call them to repentance. To give them new hope, new life, salvation. So Jesus take at the cross of Christ, both the, the mercy and, and, and justice of God collide. Mercy meaning God loves us and wants to do good to us, but we've rebelled against him, and what's headed for us is only harm and destruction. So he stands our place and takes the just penalty due our name so that he can uh, divert the wrath and anger of God on himself to take the place, to take the punishment for sinners so that through faith in Jesus we can receive his mercy. Mercy is receiving something you did not deserve. That's what mercy is. Mercy is getting something you don't deserve. If you're a Christian, God has had mercy on you. If you're breathing today, God has had mercy on you. He's had mercy on you so that you'll look at the cross of Christ. You'll look at God's love for you and see that he has paid your penalty because of your unrighteousness. And so we have two options. We can live under the wrath of God, which is what Romans 1 dictates, or we can live under the righteousness of God, which is what God's word looks like, submitting to his word, will, and ways. Our nation has decided they want to live under the unrighteousness of God and suppress the truth. And they followed suit. They're, pretty, really, they're really, really good at following line with, with Romans 1. They've got that. They've checked the box. They've, they're celebrating that. Christians, we don't celebrate what God says is evil. We submit to the righteousness of God. We submit to God's word. Well, not that Romans 1 isn't his word. What I'm saying is the, the, the logical outworkings of forsaking God is, 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 is chaos and ruin and misery. That's what our nation propagates, uh, or the leaders in our nation currently. This is what's happening. We're seeing it. It's an indictment on us, and churches are following suit. Rather than repenting, turning back to God's word, will, and ways, and crying out, for Jesus to rescue us. And this is the pattern that happens in Judges. God's people, eventually, the generation will cry out to the Lord. They'll cry out in repentance. And that's a pattern we will see throughout Judges. He says it this way in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet, they did not listen to their judges God saved them, yet they did not listen to the ones who rescued them, for they whored after other gods and bowed to them. They soon turned aside from, from, from the way in which their fathers walked, who obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, uh, the Lord was the judge. So it's God who's really saving them, he says, from the hands of their enemies. Uh, uh, Verse, um, the last part of verse 18. For the Lord was moved by pity by their groanings because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. They were more corrupt than the generation that followed. Going after other gods, serving them, bowing to, down to them. They did not 
drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he said, because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive, I will no longer drive out before them the nations that Joshua left when he died in order, that, in order to test Israel by them, whether they will take care to walk in the, in the way of the Lord as their fathers did. So the Lord uh, left the nations, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. This is the pattern. God's people rebel against them, worship all the gods of the nations. God raises up a, a leader to lead them in repentance. They repent momentarily. That guy dies, and then they, they go back and they get worse. And it keep, keeps going until there's no more judges. And then God, there's no redemption. It just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse in the last chapters. It's like, it's like a, a warm-up. Where we're at in the first few chapters are warm-ups. Pretty quickly, it gets, it gets, it's accelerated. You'll see a difference. You'll start seeing that it was like 18, 20, all these generations that there's repentance, and all of a sudden, no repentance for the rest of the book. And so what we, we see here, we saw last week, and we see here again that God leaves these nations here. Uh, why? So that they would, he, to test them to see will they obey the Lord. So what I need you to see, when you look at the chaos of our nation, and there's chaos. When you look at the apostasy of our nation, and there's apostasy. When you look at the, the great generational you know, you know, chaos we find looming in the future, when you see it, and you see uh, uh, men and women uh, worshiping anyone other than the God of the Bible, when you see that, I want you to, I want you to know that's all there to test, to see who you're going to trust. Are you going to trust your government or the God who over, rules over the government? Are you going to trust the gods of our nation or are you going to trust the God of the Bible? Are you going to trust the gods of, 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 of your neighborhood and your friend group and every, in, you know, anything that anyone thinks is spiritual? Are you going to trust the God of the Bible? Christianity will continue to move forward with great power till Jesus returns, but it will do so in the context of nations around them rebelling against the God of the Bible there to test God's people to see whom they will worship. That's what he says. He left them to, so they would take care to walk in the ways of the Lord. So this is our mission. Our mission is to stay tethered to Jesus, his word, will, and ways. He's died in our place for our sins. He's risen victoriously. He has, he has brought us into his family. He's adopted us. We are disciples here to make disciples who are willfully, joyfully obey his word. We need to understand that until Jesus returns, there's going to be temptation to worship any other God. And it may not be a, a, a big idol or, or a meaning like a, a named God or another religion. It just may be the things that you think are fun and cool and, you know, cute. I want to worship other things. I, want to, I, worship, I don't want to worship Jesus anymore. So every culture, every custom, every day, every age, there will remain a test for Christians. So for us in this day and age, I want to be real specific. If you have a, dispos, a disposition, and this is, um, many Christians do, and this is a good thing. They have a disposition to mercy and compassion. You, if you love people, you love them dearly. See, I, I, want, to, I, I want to encourage you. Or I have a word for you. If that's your disposition, praise be to God. You have a dispensation or, or, or a disposition like Jesus. You're merciful and you're compassionate. But you need to you need to be aware that your temptation will be to compromise. Because you're probably more trained in the culture's way of compassion more than God's ways of compassion. So if that's you, you're, you're, you're very merciful, you're a very compassionate person. You need to double down on your study of what it looks like to be compassionate like Christ. Not like culture. 
If you want to have any hope in any future of any generation following you, worshiping Jesus, you must double down on that. Our compassion must be that of Jesus Christ, not of culture, and not what culture says Jesus Christ was like. Additionally, if you're a moderate, if you find yourself more middle of the road, and I'm not just talking about politically, but that could, uh, that could be true too, but if you're a moderate, if you find yourself in, in, in a moderate position, you're like, I just kind of like, I'm, I'm not, not super crazy here, I'm not super crazy there, I'm not an extremist. And this is what we see in our day. Many people are moderate. They, they're like, I'm not the extreme right, I'm not the extreme left in any category. So most people want to play the moderate. What happens, however, is moderates typically drift towards wherever the, the, the non-Christian progressive movement is going. Why? Because moderates don't like conflict. And guess what? Those who don't love, know, love, and trust Jesus in our day and our age, they love conflict. They like inciting it. And they create algorithms to help you, you know, incite your own, you know, anger and your own aggression. Like, they, they love conflict. They get rich off of conflict. And so the, the thing is, if you, do, if you don't like conflict, then you've got to submit to their world will and way, their, their, their worldview and their ways, or you're going to get conflict. If, you, if you're a business owner, if you don't, you know, uh, follow, a few, you know, the, the cultural uh, commands, their, their terms of righteousness, you're going to be negatively affected. If you don't like conflict, you're just like, well, I don't agree with that, but I'm just going to go alongside with it. What, that may not damn you, but it will with the next generation. It will, because you're like, you're like them here, the, 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 the nation, the, the elders that follow Joshua, they didn't stand and contend. They let the next generation grow up not knowing, loving, and trusting the God of the Bible. And they left. They were good. This is the generation, and this is oftentimes a moderate's position. It's like, well, I got my God, my worship. I'm not going to tell anyone what they should believe. I'm just going to stay in my bubble, do my thing, not do anything else, and I'm going to stay tethered here. I don't want to affect anyone. I don't want it to be weird at family meetings. I don't want it to be weird at, the, at lunch with my coworkers. I'm just going to stay here. I'm going to die. I'm going to be with the Lord. Well, guess what? The generation that follows you is going to worship the gods of the culture. Why? Because they're not moderate. They're not afraid of conflict. They got the microphone. They get loud. They, they, they train for this to deceive a generation. See, I need you to understand that Satan's been at work for thousands of years. Like his military strategy to ruin your life is really, you know, extensive. Like he's been, he, he knows every language, he's known every nation, he's known every time and every season. He knows what it looks like. He doesn't know your thoughts, but he knows your, the inclination of your heart. He knows how to create social environments and do counterintelligence to ruin your life, deceive you. And if you're just a moderate sitting there wanting, I don't want, I want to avoid conflict, I want to stay in my box. I love your heart. <laughs> So does Satan. I'm not saying that you're, you're sinful for your moderacy. And what I'm saying is if that's you, you're so afraid of conflict, what you need to do, you need to understand the, the disastrous generational effects of drift. And if you're one who struggles with shame, guilt, and shame, that's you. You're struggling with guilt and shame. Your temptation will to start to find ways to affirm your sin. The culture will tell you to do that. Instead of running to God your Father when you're aware of your sin and you feel shame, you'll run to the culture who will affirm you. See, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they do? They ran from the presence of God. God ran after them. 
God's running after you and your shame. Turn to him. He'll cleanse you of your sin, cleanse you of your shame, just like he did Adam and Eve. That's always available for the children of God. For anyone who would repent and turn to Jesus, he will cleanse us of our unrighteousness. The problem is when the guilt and shame come, so does the enemy, the, the accusations from the enemy. And so you'll be offered alternative lifestyles, other ways to counterfeit communities who will affirm you, to help you follow your passions instead of following your God. That'll be your temptation. The, the last group of people that we'll talk about today is that temptation will be to those who are tempted to outrage and fighting. It's on both parties, both sides. These are the people who are like, man, I'm not, you heard moderates, you're like, I'm definitely not a moderate. I'm not a moderate. You know, oh, mercy and compassion, don't have that either. All right, yeah, we're at you. We're at you. You're the one who wants to go fight. You want to contend. Awesome. But here's what you need to be reminded of. Your war isn't against flesh and blood. It's not against people. Your enemy is not the guy with the, you know, uh, you know on, the, on the Twitter feed. That's not him. That's not your enemy. He might work for the enemy, but he's not the enemy. Just know that we, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Though flesh and blood is in the, in the mix, our, our fight is not against people. Those people are captive, the Bible tells us. They are captive. We're against their captor. And so we do demolish ideologies and any false teaching that would keep people from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And that's where our war is fought. We contend there, but we don't get caught up in the civilian affairs of fighting online with outrage and, 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 and just flesh and blood fighting. Fight in the spirit, in the prayer closet with the gospel, with the word of God. We do engage in dialogue and, con- and we do, we're not afraid of conflict. But we don't enter conflict just for the sake of that, but ultimately to get, introduce people to Jesus. I'll end with this question. The question we have, our generation has, will we raise another generation who does not know the Lord? That's what they will do. They will raise another generation who does not know the Lord. The question is, will we? Now, these are the nations that the Lord left to to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced the wars in Canaan. It It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines. So these are the nations we're going to see played out through the rest of Judges. The, Philist- the five nations of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites uh, who lived on Mount Lebanon and from Mount uh, Baal, uh, Hermron, Her- uh, as far as Lebo, uh, Hamath. That's, these are the people we're going to continue to see show up. Verse 4, and they were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. They lived among them. And what did they do among them? Their daughters they took for themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons and served their gods. So that was their result. That's what they did with their generational moment. They saw the God, the men looked around and go, these women, they seem to be into prostitution and that's kind of cool to us. Their body counts high and we like that. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna take them for our wives. And now we're going to give our sons to them as well. And our daughters, we're going to give to the men who prostitute these women out. That's what we're doing. Evil, vile 
wickedness. God's people let another generation grow up that did not know the Lord. The question for you and I is, will we continue in the same pattern? Or will we raise up a generation that knows the Lord, knows his word, his will and ways, and joyfully, lovingly, willfully submits and obeys him? The question is the same question that uh, Joshua asked his people. As for you and your house, who will you serve? Will we serve the Lord? That's the question. Let's pray.